In the modern age, there are a lot of ways that someone can go about trying to learn about physics or any other kind of science. There are books, podcasts, magazines, videos, and so on and so on. And most of this information, or at least a lot of it, is pretty good. Sadly, however, not all of it is. There's a lot of disinformation or misinformation out there, too. And today on Why This Universe, we're going to depart a bit from our usual kind of content to talk about a particular kind of science misinformation, what we're going to call here populist science. This episode of Why This Universe is supported by Wondrium. Wondrium is a mind-blowing subscription service that offers thousands of video and audio courses on a huge range of topics. I've been a big fan and a regular consumer of Wondrium's content for the past 15 years or so, and over that time I've listened to dozens of their courses, including ones on history, philosophy, literature, math, and science. For me, it's kind of like taking an intro-level university course from a great professor on a subject you've always wanted to know more about, but without the big tuition fee and all in the comfort of your own home or daily commute. One of my all-time favorite series in Wondrium is called Mysteries of Modern Physics Time by my friend and colleague Sean Carroll. Sean is a fantastic physicist and communicator. In over 24 lectures, he talks about what we know about time, from Newton and Einstein up to modern questions pertaining to black holes, the Big Bang, and even the possibility of time travel. So if you want to know more about the physics of time or just about anything else, give Wondrium a try. You can sign up for Wondrium now through our special URL to get a month of unlimited access for free. Just go to wondrium.com universe. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash U-N-I-V-E-R-S-E. You're listening to Why This Universe, a podcast where we break down the biggest ideas in physics. I'm Shalma Wegsman. And I'm Dan Hooper. think about this phenomena that I'm calling populist science back in late September, when a colleague of mine, Gordon Kernyayek, shout out to Gordon, stopped by my office, and he asked if I'd seen this recent editorial in the Guardian newspaper written by a physicist uh, named Sabine Hossenfelder. I hadn't seen it yet, but I, I googled the article and I took a look. Um, the title of the editorial was, quote, no one in physics dares say so, but the race to invent new particles is pointless. And then the editorial went on to claim that when theoretical physicists hypothesize about new kinds of particles that might exist, they aren't doing this out of a legitimate scientific motivation, but instead they're doing it for reasons of career advancement or even financial gain, like trying to land an academic job or trying to get more grant money. Now, just for the record, I think this is an utterly ridiculous claim. It's a clearly unreasonable and frankly disingenuous depiction of how the scientific process works. Physicists, including myself, propose and develop new theories all the time. And we do this because there are real puzzles and open questions out there that our current best theories, like the standard model of particle physics, can't currently address. And some of these new theories we come up with predict the existence of new kinds of particles. This is how science is supposed to work. And for the record, it's worked really well over the past hundred years or so. Just think about all the discoveries that the last century has yielded in, in particle physics. Uh, the neutron was first proposed in 1920 and then discovered in experiments a dozen years later in 1932. Uh, similarly, particles like positrons, pions, neutrinos, quarks, and so on and so forth were all hypothesized well before they were observed in any kind of experiment. 
The most recent example, this is the Higgs boson, of course, which was hypothesized or speculated about back in the 1960s, but wasn't observed in an experiment until 2012 when it was discovered at the Large Hadron Collider. If the physicists that were responsible for all these discoveries had taken Sabine Hassenfelder's advice seriously about how to approach science, most of these discoveries would have never been made. And just to be clear, no one here is arguing that most of the particles that my colleagues and I speculate about will turn out to be real. Most of them won't. And that's perfectly fine. That's how the scientific method works. You offer a hypothesis, maybe motivated by some problem or some inadequacy with the existing theories, and then you try to find out if that hypothesis is true. Usually these hypotheses aren't true, but sometimes they are, and that's where progress comes from. So before moving on any further, I want to pause and, and make one thing clear. It's not my intention here in this podcast to single out Sabim Hassenfelder, and I don't want any of this to be construed as, as a personal attack. I'm kind of using her as an example of someone who's purveying a particular kind of what I consider to be scientific misinformation, but she's by no means unique. There are plenty of examples of people out there, you know, in, in science communication or, or on YouTube or, you know, podcasts or whatever, who are, are doing things very much like this. So, so Sabine isn't, you know, I'm not making her out to be a unique example of this. Just she's got a lot of prominence out there in the field. A lot of people read her blog. A lot of people see her videos. So, you know, that, that sets her apart from a lot of other people doing it. But a lot of people do this sort of stuff. Okay, so back to our story. I was thinking about Sabine's editorial and others like it. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how I should think about what she was doing and how we should best understand and classify the kind of misinformation that she was putting forward. On the one hand, this wasn't just simple pseudoscience. There's plenty of pseudoscience out there, especially on the internet, but this wasn't the same thing. So when I use the phrase pseudoscience, what I have in mind here are things like, I don't know, claims that evolution is somehow disproven by the second law of thermodynamics, or claims that physicists have somehow built a perpetual motion machine or discovered a way to travel faster than the speed of light. I mean, there's a whole community of people out there who claim to believe that the Earth is flat. This kind of nonsense is sadly prevalent in our society. But Sabine's message is more subtle than these simple forms of pseudoscience. For one thing, she's a real physicist. She has a PhD in physics, and she does physics research for a living. Her credentials aren't at issue here. And the facts she puts forward oftentimes aren't exactly wrong either. They're just very misleading, and they tend to be excessively cherry-picked. So what she's doing isn't exactly pseudoscience, but what I would begin to ask myself is, if it's not pseudoscience, what is it exactly? Like, how should we think about what she's putting forward? So I was in this stage of my thought process when I saw a tweet from my friend and colleague Gianfranco Bertone, who's a physicist in Amsterdam. In his tweet, Gianfranco described Sabine's editorial as, quote, a master class in science populism. And when I heard that phrase, that phrase science populism, it was suddenly clear to me what Sabine was really doing here in the way she communicates. Gianfranco went on to say that Sabine's editorial had all of the following elements. First of all, it promoted a false crisis without including any sense of nuance or any doubt. Second, it used a lot of sweeping generalizations. And if it had any evidence at all, it was like anecdotal evidence. Third, the arguments all relied on kind of the straw man fallacy. And finally, it cast doubt on the integrity of scientists, 
pitting the reader against the judgment and the opinions of the experts. Now, for anyone who's been living through the past decade or so, we've got a lot of experience in dealing with populism. But usually when we think about populism, we see it in the context of politics. But politics can sometimes overlap with science. We see a giant dose of populism in the anti-vaccine movement, for example, with all that vitriolic distrust that's been directed towards people like Anthony Fauci in recent years. And we see this kind of populism when politicians describe climate change as some sort of hoax. And we see it in people like Sabine Hassenfelder when they promote the notion that scientists are behaving dishonestly and that their motives and conclusions are not to be trusted. So while pseudoscience is of course problematic, I actually think it's this kind of populist science that's even more dangerous. I think it's particularly dangerous because it's so subtle and it's harder to recognize. To most of us, if we're reasonably sophisticated consumers of information, you know, we're, it's pretty easy to spot pseudoscience most of the time and distinguish it from real science. Sometimes the claims are outrageous or they rely on obviously flimsy evidence like personal accounts without any, you know, systematic studies. And even if it's not immediately obvious that the claims themselves are wrong, there are often other telltale signs that we can use to distinguish science from pseudoscience. For example, if, you know, the material is from a reputable media source, it's probably not going to be completely wrong. Um, if I see an article in the New York Times science page, uh, just as an example, um, I know that they apply some rigorous scientific, you know, journalistic standards. And, uh, you know, they might get things wrong a little bit from time to time, but you usually can be pretty confident that what they write is going to be a reasonable approximation of what scientists think is true at that time. But now consider someone who's not an expert in physics and comes across the writing of Sabine Hassenfelder. How can they tell that what she's writing is misinformation? And how can they tell it apart from more honest and accurate depictions of the scientific community and how it works? Well, that can be pretty hard to do. Like I said before, she's a real physicist. And if you judged her by her credentials, she would seem to be a reliable source. And even if you tried to fact-check her editorial, this wouldn't get you very far either. Let's just consider a few examples from that editorial. So, in it, she writes that, quote, In private, many physicists admit they do not believe the particles they are paid to search for exist. They do it because their colleagues are doing it. And then later in the same editorial, she writes, quote, Experimental particle physicists know of this problem and try to distance themselves from what their colleagues in theory development do. At the same time, they profit from it because all those hypothetical particles are used in grant proposals to justify experiments, and so the experimentalists keep their mouths shut too. So how would someone who's not working in the field of particle physics even try to fact-check this claim? What reference would they turn to? Like, what would they try to Google? The idea that particle physicists are all secretly aware of some big problem, and that we're all keeping it a secret to somehow profit from it, is a completely unconfirmable claim, at least to someone who's not inside the scientific community. Now, I'm an insider to that scientific community, and I know this claim is false. I just know enough people, including myself, and, and I, I know what their motivations are because I know them personally. But if I tried to prove this to somebody who's not an insider like me, it would be very hard to do, especially if they were you know, skeptical of that claim. Let's back up now and try to put this all into context. The reason that I'm bothering to talk about this topic on the podcast today is that I think it's really important. 
It's important because public trust in science is essential for democracy to function. To be clear, it's okay for people to disagree with scientists sometimes. That's not what I'm objecting to here. But if you're actively working to create the false impression that scientists are scheming to manipulate the system to their advantage, then you are also effectively working to erode the public's confidence in our scientific institutions. We need those institutions to make well-informed policy decisions. When the Centers for Disease Control or the Environmental Protection Agency make a scientific determination, I don't want people thinking back to Sabine Hassenfelder's editorial and wondering whether they can trust these scientists. The scientists that make up these institutions might not be perfect, and I'm sure they make some mistakes, but they are our most reliable source for many kinds of scientific information, information that we need, and information that we need to be able to trust. So if you're out there trying to erode this trust by creating a false narrative about corrupted, self-serving scientists, well, then just knock it off. Why This Universe is brought to you by the University of Chicago Podcast Network. It's edited and produced by me, Shalma Wegsman, and my co-host is Dan Hooper, a professor of astrophysics at the University of Chicago and Fermilab. If you like our show and you want to support us even more, you can find us on Patreon. There you can access ad-free episodes of the show, as well as exclusive Ask Us Anything episodes where you get to ask Dan and I direct questions about physics or anything else. So if you are curious about that, you can find it at patreon.com slash whythisuniverse. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. That's my high horse for the day.